0: It's exhausting, it wastes resources, and ultimately organizations fail because they don't have this notion of permanence, of durability, of setting things up that can be followed by others. Under those kinds of leaders, people are not empowered. They wait for the leader to make the decision. They only implement what the leader wants to do. My experience is in the most uh, flexible, durable organizations, the leader is predictable. People under him or her can figure out what the likely decision uh, would be that
1: Today on the show, we've got Joel Peterson back. If you'll remember from last year, chairman of JetBlue, formerly involved all through the ranks at Trammell Crow, uh, ended up as managing director. Is that right, Joel? Is that where you ended up? Yeah.
0: Managing partner.
1: Managing partner. That's right. Stanford professor, everything about Peterson Partners and all the private equity and venture capital. Please go back and listen to that episode. We We talked about Joel's last book on that on that show, The 10 Laws of Trust. And I'm really excited that entrepreneurial leadership has come out. So Joel, can you tell us just a little bit about what this book's about?
0: Yeah. So the idea behind this is I've worked with really hundreds of entrepreneurial leaders, entrepreneurs over the years, and some have failed and some have succeeded. And I started thinking about, you know, what is it that makes the successful ones succeed? And I really came to realize that they're not just pure entrepreneurs. They do a whole lot more than innovate, than light fires. They actually are able to manage and create durable change and bring on teams and they create a durable enterprise. And so I really started thinking about, what is the essence of what they do that creates durability? And uh, so I really tried to define this term, entrepreneurial leadership, and put together four summary issues that each entrepreneurial leader needs to do well. And uh, so it was really trying to capture the learnings of a half century of of mistakes and and successes in this whole arena.
1: Well, I'm I'm really excited to dive into this. And maybe... (sighs) You know, maybe a good place to start is: Can we talk about these different types of leaders—the presider, the manager, the administrator, the pure entrepreneur, the politician? Can can we kind of maybe go through those one by one and give people sure. a bit of context for the way you define them? Um, sure. Should we start with presider?
0: Yeah. So I think in a lot of uh, organizations, and I, I, none of these is meant to be denigrating at all. But in a lot of large organizations, you find people whose main task is to keep things going as they've been. They're conservative managers. They will issue decrees from the corner office. They preside over a successful business. They keep things going, and they're quite good at it. They're typically great communicators, but their role is really to preside over an ongoing, longstanding business.
1: Great. And then the manager?
0: So managers uh, we find in most organizations managers deal with complexity and they're able to juggle all the balls and make things happen so many many times managers will end up in the leadership role but managers are one kind of of leader that you see where they are really the best ever at managing complexity
1: and and how do you separate cuz you know a presider might think that they're good at complexity as well how do you how do those separate in your mind
0: well, there's clearly some overlap. It's kind of the fundamental leaning of the presider is to maintain the status quo and to be a ribbon cutter, baby kisser, articulator of mission, presider over board meetings. They they maintain. They really are in charge of maintaining what's great about an organization. Many times, the the philosophy of the organization is reposed in the in the presider. Mm.
1: And and the administrator. Tell us how administrator is different as you define it here.
0: So administrators are typically those who uh, deal with policy. They understand the second and third order effects of things. They can project what'll happen two and three years down the road from any decision. They understand that best possible decisions turn into policy, that then get implemented over and over. So they're typically quite good at policy matters.
1: And and so let's start with those three: a presider, a manager, an administrator. How might they? How might those approach something
0: different? How might they do what? Uh,
1: if if they're faced with a business situation, how might those three different approaches approach it differently? How are they thinking about that?
0: Well, the presider, in many cases, would really just be looking at the ongoingness of the enterprise. What what is best for presiding over ongoingness? The manager would be looking at breaking things down into tasks, the complexity of getting from point A mm-hmm. to point B and getting people organized. Who does what by when? What is the budget? You know, What are the deliverables? And they manage that process to get from point A to point B. The administrator might step back and say, what policy does this generate? How will this impact the status of various people's jobs? What will this mean for bringing on new people, et cetera. So they're they're actually thinking about second and third order effects and and policy implications of everything they do. The notion of precedence is a really important one for the administrator because they're having to keep things organized that Mm. way. So let me just hasten to add that many people do all of these at some level. The entrepreneurial leader has to be able to do these as well as be a politician and an innovator. So they they really have all five features of managers. Some are extreme. Some managers are extreme in one form or another. But the entrepreneurial leader really draws upon all of these kinds of leadership.
1: And so that really leads us to this next one. Can you talk about this, this pure entrepreneur?
0: So we've all seen pure entrepreneurs in that they light fires. They have an idea minute. They create new products, new services. They launch new companies. But most new companies fail. I think it's seven or eight out of 10 fail within a decade. And so they, they are unable, the pure entrepreneur is unable to build a sustainable business, to really create all the supporting management processes administrative policies, bring on the right people, onboard them correctly, coach them, et cetera, to create a durable enterprise. So what I try to do is define the entrepreneurial leader as one who creates durable change, does more than just innovate, light fires, they actually turn them into wildfires.
1: I really wanna talk more about this on the show. Let's cover politician first. Talk to us about politicians. You've got it defined.
0: Yeah. So the pure politician is somebody who understands power and they they know to punish their enemies and reward their friends. And they really understand how power is generated, how it's conserved, how it's hoarded, and understand a lot about reward and punishment. So that's a feature in most organizations. And I think the entrepreneurial leader understands that, but doesn't rely on that solely.
1: Yeah. And- you know, you, I've heard you talk about this on other interviews or things. The word politician can come with a negative ring. Can you talk about the beneficial aspects of it for, for people that maybe have an immediate negative reaction to that term?
0: Yeah, so you must be reading the polls because I think it's down to something like 7 or 8% now have a high regard for politicians. <laughs> and a lot of that is because uh, we don't feel like they tell us the truth. We feel like they spin facts to us. They're manipulating us. And But really, the role of the politician is to hear both sides of an argument, to weigh them, to make deals, to compromise, to figure out how each side can find a win in a compromised situation. And they have quite uh, distinct skills at being able to make deals happen between warring parties. In large organizations you have competition for resources for ideas or whatever and the political element of the leader is to hear both sides make both sides understand that there's a win in it for them and be able to move forward so it's not a it's not an unimportant skill it's just if the whole organization is run by a politician you often find that the most powerful person wins and not the best idea and for a durable organization it has to be the best idea wins
1: yeah well, I, I'm I'm such a fan for this word durable. You know, I'm such a Warren Buffett nerd and he's always talking about a durable competitive advantage and things like this. Can you talk about why, when you're talking about this as a theme for you, why durable is, is the word you landed on or what that means to you?
0: Well, it means to me that you're not forever replowing the same ground. I don't know if you've ever worked in an organization where Every decision is made as a case of first impression, but I've actually worked in situations like that where one day something will seem right and then the next day the leader will change his or her mind and you're off on a new attack and it's exhausting. It wastes resources and ultimately organizations fail because they don't have this notion of permanence, of durability, of setting things up that can be followed by others. Under those kinds of leaders, people are not empowered. They wait for the leader to make the decision. They only implement what the leader wants to do. And my experience is in the most uh, flexible, durable organizations, the leader is predictable. People under him or her can figure out what the likely decision uh, would be that that they would make, and they go ahead and implement it, and they know they'll be supported. That way, decision-making gets close to the customer. It's pushed down into the field as far as you can go. And these are really way more powerful organizations because people have been empowered uh, because of the predictability of the of the leader. And, and therefore, decisions are durable.
1: You know, it reminds me of the the good to great example when he says, you know, the tyrant with a thousand helper can, can go out and tell you what time it is versus those organizations where everybody gets to be a clock builder, right? And now, you know, you don't just have to wait for the one smart guy to make the decision. We all know what needs to happen for the customer kind of, is it related at all? Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah. If you're waiting for the one person to make the decision, you have an incredibly disempowered enterprise. Nobody can make the call. Nobody can make a decision. Everybody's waiting on that one person to make the call. Whereas if they've actually become predictable, you know, if they're what I'm calling the entrepreneurial leader who has a high level of trust entrusts uh, others with power, with decision-making, the whole organization is empowered. It can move quickly and it can make decisions that endure, not ones that have to be changed and uh, revisited every month. I love it. You think about
1: those organizations, like those companies that are just known for good customer service, like the people, the the companies that are a joy to deal with. You're not constantly being told, well, I'll have to ask a manager. We'll have to get back to you on that right? they That like those expectations and those authorities have been pushed down. So the person you're talking to can actually help you,
0: huh? Yeah. The frontline employee has the ability to make a call. I love the Nordstrom example where people were able to make customers happy on the sales floor. You know, if a customer came in with a complaint, they could make the decision. And the rule was do what's right by the customer. Yeah. And uh, people could understand that and they could implement that and they knew they'd be supportive. Yeah. I love it.
1: Well, you know, I think the thing that I would love to start with here is for those of us who think maybe we are a little, we're a little overweighted in the pure entrepreneur side of things, and we have a desire to foster these other skills and make make the, you know, make the leap, gain the skills to becoming more, the more well-rounded entrepreneurial leadership example. Can you talk to us about people you've seen make that change? And then maybe we, after that, we can start talking into things the rest of us can do to to add those other skills. Like, didn't you get involved with JetBlue originally from Peterson Partners? You were an investor to begin with. Is that how you originally got involved? That's correct. Can you tell us just a little bit about that story and about David Needleman and your experience with him?
0: Well, so David Needleman is uh, one of the greatest pure entrepreneurs, probably the greatest a commercial airline entrepreneur of all time, including Richard Branson and Kerb Keller. He's just, he's incredible. He's a genius at it. But early on, he was a pure entrepreneur. He could light fires, but he had a hard time managing the whole process. Since then, David has left and founded Azul in Brazil, and now he's forming a new airline. He's learned a lot. By the way, Steve Jobs learned a lot after he was fired at Apple and replaced by, I've forgotten the guy's name, who was the head of Pepsi, and Apple had a... John Cully or
1: something like that?
0: Yeah, but Steve learned a lot and became better able to incorporate more of these elements. Now, he was unable to do it himself in all cases, but he understood the importance of it and brought in other capable people who were able to complete the the entrepreneurial leadership team.
1: And, and so when you think about... And and I would love to spend more time on this. When you think about specifically David, who, who you, you know, you met him at that early, earlier part of his career when you say he was more of the pure entrepreneur. And then you saw him make the transition to adding these other skill sets and becoming more well-rounded. What kind of observations do you have about that process? Just actually being there for it?
0: So it's interesting. I I became David's first investor in Azul after removing him as the CEO at JetBlue, and I wouldn't have done that <laughs> had, had I not thought the world of him, had I not recognized that there was a world class talent there. What he did at Azul, I think, is surround himself with others who could fill in for where he wasn't. Uh, particularly strong. I remember Peter Drucker telling me one time that you should build on your strengths and make your weaknesses irrelevant. And he was encouraging me at that time to stop working on the places that I wasn't strong and really focus on where I had a unique competitive advantage and make sure that I hired in others to do that. So I saw David do the same thing. He brought in people who were really strong where he wasn't strong. And I think he really today appreciates the power of a team. You know, that... That is
1: a pretty fascinating story. You're chairman of the board at JetBlue. You know, you remove the CEO and then but you have and then you immediately invest in his next thing. So was that tense? What was that? What was that like at that time?
0: Well, it was obviously tense removing David because JetBlue was his baby. He'd conceived it. He'd put it together. He loved it. He, it was his career move. And of, of course it was tense. And he thought we'd made a mistake. The board was behind it felt like it was the right thing to do. I happened to be the lead director at the time, so I drew the black bean to go tell David this and he had us go back in and interview all of his direct reports. You know, he thought they would convince us otherwise and they were all supportive of it. Some of them asking why it took us so long and it wasn't anything against David. It was just they felt that 10 years was long enough as CEO that it was time for us to grow to a new level. You know, people kind of have a chapter. So Companies outgrow people. I've, I've started some things that have gotten to the point that I'm no longer the right person uh, to run it. It needs a new skill set. It needs refreshing. Sometimes it's just too long in the saddle is too long in the saddle. So I think any founder uh, needs to prepare the company to take on uh, somebody as the leader after he or she is gone.
1: Yeah. So as you've seen him again, and let's talk about Azul as this test case. As you've seen him over there, What were the things that, you know, what were the things that he hired around him or what what did he, you know, as he progressed, what, what did that look like in his case?
0: He had great operating people, great financial people. He was in the United States, they were in Brazil, and so they had to have their sleeves rolled up and have their hands on the tiller to be able to operate the business. And there was no way that he could come crashing into meetings or changing his mind on something. They really had to run it. And so he was able to give it strategic direction, have the vision, create the spirit, the culture, do all the things that he does so brilliantly. But he wasn't flying through operating space at that point in time. I think he's learned to juggle these things. I I would back him again in another enterprise. I just think he's learned that much and he's that brilliant.
1: What what a compliment, by the way. I'll have to invite him on the show (laughs) to to tell him. Can we talk about this? Can we get the Drucker quote one more time? Because I just feel like there's so much in that.
0: Yeah. So I was a fairly young manager. We we went out to Claremont uh, where he was teaching in the last years of his life. I was a big Drucker fan and I pulled him aside after uh, our conversation. I said, you know, I'm trying to really become a well-rounded manager, and I am terrible at administration. I just, I don't like reading legal documents. I don't th- like thinking about the implications of policy, et cetera. I'm good at finance and I'm good at marketing and I really love those things and I can make deals, but I'm bad at this other stuff. How can I get a crash course in that? And he said, you know, build on your strengths and make your weaknesses irrelevant. Stop trying to get good. In fact, I at that point in time, I was taking a CPA course. I was trying to become a CPA because I was the chief financial officer at that point in time. And he said, it's a waste of time. If you don't love it, if you're not really naturally good at it, there are people you can hire and put around you and you talk to them and understand them, but build on where you have a particular genius and rely on others to bring their genius to the equation. And in many cases, I think that's what the entrepreneurial leader does. They don't necessarily have all five tools. They're not necessarily politicians, administrators, managers, presiders, and entrepreneurs, but they understand the value of each of those approaches, and they make sure the whole team has an entrepreneurial leadership. They preside over that. They run that. They hold it accountable, but they don't have to do every piece of it all the time.
1: You know... It's interesting you talk about that. I mean, A, how cool that you actually got to meet Peter Drucker. I, w- I wish I would had that opportunity. Yeah. So, so after that conversation, what did that look like? What did you do differently after that?
0: I dropped the CPA course and, and really started making deals, thinking about financial problems and uh, building brand. I, I had a big interest in building an enduring company building something that would be evergreen. You know, most deal businesses fall apart when the founders either die or lose interest or do something else. I wanted to build an evergreen company. So I started thinking about what are the brand attributes? What would we like to be known for? How do we organize ourselves around customers and you know have customer loyalty and all the kinds of things you do that go beyond doing deals? And so I really started focusing my energies on that. And,
1: and once you figure those things out, I've, no, I've observed a lot of folks who have maybe had a struggle getting the rest of the, rest of the organization to come on board or to really catch that vision. What, what did that look like for you to, to go from figuring out to helping the rest of the organization embrace it?
0: Well, so it's interesting uh, because we're kind of into the, what I call the foundational elements of becoming an entrepreneurial leader the first thing that you do is you become trustworthy yourself. And then you consider, how do I build a high trust organization? What are the elements that high trust organizations have? How do they behave differently from low trust organizations? So once you have that currency, you understand that currency and you say, I'm never going to do anything that violates trust. You've got the beginning. The next thing that you have to do is figure out what is the objective? What is our mission? What peak are we trying to climb? And really be careful in identifying that. And I'm not sure that I agree with the one that we chose at Trammell Crow at the time, but we really wanted to be the largest, most successful uh, real estate uh, investor builder in the world. And that was really our mission. That was the peak we were climbing. And so we were kind of the fastest growing real estate company around. And then once you've got those things figured out and set up, you've really got to build the team. And that's a question of not only selecting the right people, but doing due diligence, interviewing carefully, onboarding thoughtfully, assigning them the right place where they can learn the business, demoting or promoting them at the right speed, getting the compensation right, and then ultimately letting go those that uh, really are not the right players to have on the field. So that's the the answer to the team question that you were asking a long a long way about it. But you know, getting the team right is really critical.
1: You know, um, I know we're closing in on our time for the first half of the interview here, but maybe maybe this is a follow up to what was just said. You know, for so many of us, we would love to not think hard about it and instead just give us a check mark. Of course, I'm trustworthy. People trust me. I'm a trustworthy person, right? Any thoughts on generating the humility of how to like, go looking for our blind spots and how to, you know, instead of just patting ourselves on the back for trust we've built, how to get ourselves to work harder at becoming even more trustworthy than we are now?
0: I think there are kind of two things. One is start with humility and realize that uh, you probably aren't as trustworthy as you think you are. There's a point in time where you might do things that you don't think you would do under pressure or circumstances that you just couldn't imagine. So I think you have to have a certain vulnerability and humility about trust and realize that it's a a precious thing and you have to safeguard it. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing, I think, though, is to seek feedback. You know, there's nothing quite like getting feedback. and, And that really requires, again, humility. You have to embrace people who give you negative feedback. You have to thank them for it. You have to encourage them to give you more. You have to report back in on... Here's what I heard you say. Here's what I'm going to do about it. Let me know if I'm making any improvement. And that way you can adjust and, and c- it's continuous improvement. People will trust you more than if you, if, you, if you have no vulnerabilities or you never admit any, they'll learn not to trust you.
1: Yeah, that's some wise words there.
0: Well, <clears throat> I
1: think it's a good part to, space to end for part one. Everybody, please do what I did and go to audible.com and buy your own copy of Entrepreneurial leadership. Besides besides Amazon or Audible, if you haven't seen joelcpeterson.com, you can find out more about the books there, but you can also sign up for the free e-course that I signed up with. Besides that or maybe LinkedIn or or Twitter or what what's the best ways, Joel, is that are those kind of the best places for people to kind of find out more?
0: yeah i've written a bunch of articles on LinkedIn over the years, and i'll post there every week or so uh something that may be of interest to people so i've got about I think four hundred and twenty thousand followers, which isn't a huge amount and there are a lot of people that have millions of followers so but it's it's a number that's a bit of a a community
1: yeah i it was interesting for me to kind of as as we've been communicating there to see you know, things like what's it like to teach Stanford classes <laughs> over the internet and, and kind of, I feel like I get to live, live a little bit of your life vicariously as you share some of those things.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, it's tough. <laughs> that part of it is tough. Sure.
1: Well, everybody, please go get your own copy of Entrepreneurial Leadership and tune into part two of our interview. Thanks so much.